Welcome to UK Rail Journeys, Series 1. In this series, I travel to North West Wales with the Steam Dreams Rail Company on their Welsh Dragon Tour. Episode 11, where I take a coach to visit a castle and find out that the name is Beaumaris and not Beaumaris. Day three has dawned grey and misty. Although now that we're on the coach, one or two spots, the sun seems to be trying to burn its way through the clouds. Our coach is travelling towards Beaumaris Castle. There's quite a lot of traffic this morning, so it's not a high-speed journey. Everyone's refreshed after a good night's sleep and a decent breakfast. I'm looking forward to see what today brings. Just approaching a roundabout. One of the turnings is to Bangor, which brings in mind the Fiddler's Dram record, Day Trip to Bangor, that got to number three many, many years ago. You'll be able to see the old Menai Bridge, Robert. The old suspension bridge, right forward. Just in the foreground of the trees to your right is the old church. Uh, the late by is clear at the moment, so unless I'm told differently, we'll possibly have a quick photo stop on that lay-by on the way back. Needless to say, before the bridge, they had a couple of little ferry boats. So we've crossed the Menai Strait, and now we're on the Isle of Anglesey. Uh, you're all familiar with Coronation Street, Brookside and all the rest of it. Just on your left is the Welsh version. We're now travelling through the small town of Menai Bridge, negotiating a roundabout where the pub is Robinson's. If I remember, Robinson's is a brewery just outside Manchester. Any of you into the Welsh detective series, The Hidden? It started off in Welsh and then subtitles, I think, and then it came off in English. Basically, all around North Wales, uh, the first series was a little bit dark and everything else, and a little bit too long. But the island where she lived and the father is uh, just coming up on your right hand side, the little bridge, and then the house. I believe some of you are going to what used to be called the Secret Garden. Now the hidden garden, just on your left hand. Oh, that's what he's flashing me for. <laughs> Everybody's friend. Police speed trap. And needless to say, we're running parallel with the Menai Straits now. On the other side is what is, I call it a town, but it is defined as a city, and that is Bangor. It would have one of the older cathedrals in Great Britain, but unfortunately during the Civil War and etc, unfortunately the losing army or the winning army came through and plundered. Yep, thank you. Got to remember to stop at the Chateau. The thank you was because there was a cyclist in front of us who's hopped onto the pavement. 
little bit further, especially just as we pass the chateau, you should get good views of the Bangor Pier. That's one of the stops when HMS Waverley is running well. It's one of its stops it does. Just coming up on the right hand side, I can't remember if it's four or five star. With a big dragon at the door. The only problem with the big dragon at the door is that it's held up with Dexian. We've now stopped for the last group of passengers to join our coach. They're staying at the Chateau Rhiannon Hotel. And now we're on our way. Chateau Rhiannon Hotel has a beautiful view over the Menai Strait. And at this moment, some very, very expensive looking motorboat is making its way along. Probably a family really enjoying themselves. Just coming up on your right hand side, you can see the rooftops of some of the little houses, or what look like little. These are all kind of terrace steps down to the water's edge and then they've got their own boring rights and everything else. Most of these are going for at least a million pounds. We're currently on a very narrow bit of road stop for roadworks. There doesn't appear to be anything happening, except I can see a stop-go board set at stop for us. On our right, the sun is breaking through and starting to twinkle on the water. But between us and the strait, a large number of oak trees. Access for animals to the island is relatively limited, and therefore there is a good stronghold of red squirrels. Uh, we have progress now. There are some vehicles passing us. So maybe before too long, we'll have a turn with the green go board. We've been here a very long time. It makes you wonder whether there's a fault in the technology for the stop go board. Maybe it needs some grease to enable them to spin it round. There must be a reason why nobody's moving in either direction. It's interesting that the road-working crew seem to all be driving off in their lorries and vans. Our cars are starting to move. I think we're on our way. And the stop-go board has been removed. And we come out into sunshine, though there's still grey cloud across the strait. Outskirts of Eumaris. This little plot of land on your right hand side is where the old gallows used to be. Still a little bit overcast, you can possibly make out the coastline on your right hand side, and then you'd have the lower hills of the North Wales coastline, and then possibly in the distance, if it's visible, I can't see it at the moment, is the Great Ormuth Landino. 
Off to your right forward is the pier where you'll be meeting your boat. Because of parking and everything else now, I can't get around the back or it's very hit and miss. But it is a lot smaller than what you think. This road is definitely not built for a coach to pass a lorry on. But basically, you're going down the main high street and then opposite the main high street is the promenade. And then if you make yourself there, there's a number of little coffee shops or the hotel. And then you've got the pier. Your boat is leaving at 2 o'clock or 1400, whichever comes earliest. And if you could meet at approximately quarter two to ten to at the latest, the guides can get you little tags so they can count you on the boat, etc. It's just a little safety thing, they issue tags depending on which boat you're going on to. A couple of old churches for the ones who are going to wander to the backs of Umaris a little bit. And as we turn around the corner, the initial town itself is quite old and you've got an old jailhouse which is possibly worth a visit if it'll fit into your timing. Where the puffin sign is, is the entry to the jail. You can see the jetty just off to your right, so it's any of these little side streets if you can tear yourself away all the bargains and everything else. If you want to splash out you've got the hotel on your right hand side, go in there for a little house on your left hand side is reputed to be one of the oldest around here now and self-explanatory you've got the castle to your front. If you congregate in between this little island uh, they're supposed to keep the coach bay clear for us and we're hopefully leaving at four o'clock 1600. If anybody needs toilets if you see where the castle gates are to your front turn left and it's only a little short walk to the toilets to your right front you got a white fronted building that is the old law courthouse it's unusual in itself that judge jeffries who used to sit on the seat here a lot of time is either hung them or carted them off to australia and it's usual in the sense that the jury sits higher than the judge but again you've got a little alleyway to your right and then to the coastline and then to the pier. An English person would call this Beaumaris Castle but listening to local people I think it's actually pronounced Beaumaris. Anyway just gone through the ticket office and now I'm stood across the moat from the castle buildings proper. The horse chestnut trees seem to be laden with conkers this year. The castle itself is awe-inspiring but of course has suffered over the hundreds of years since it was left to go to ruin. Once you've entered the castle there are a number of directions you can take inside the castle walls seems very popular for people to walk up the flight of steps to the castle wall and then walk along the wall. By doing that, of course, you get the view that the centuries would have had many hundreds of years ago. So here we are on the Isle of Anglesey, 
and there is this vast castle. Why is it here? Edward I, who reigned from 1272 to 1307, was known as both Longshanks because of his great height and the Hammer of the Scots, for obvious reasons. Very possible that the residents of 13th century Anglesey had less complimentary names for him. The way Edward acted in Bumaris was typical of the ruthless way he stamped his authority on his newly conquered territories in Wales. He didn't just build castles. He created English towns to go with them. He rode roughshod over centuries of Welsh culture and history. The island of Anglesey was special to the Welsh long before Bumaris was ever thought of. It was celebrated as Mona, Mother of Wales, because of its mild climate and fertile land, which made it the so-called breadbasket of Wales that helped to sustain the nation and support its independence. In the early 13th century, a town called Thranfais in the southeast corner of Anglesey grew up under the patronage of Llywelyn the Great. His royal palace was nearby, and he founded the first of just three Franciscan friaries in Wales. By the 1280s, Thranfais was a busy port trading with other towns in Britain and the continent. None of this mattered to Edward, as it was just a mile from the spot he'd identified for his new town and his castle at Beaumaris. It had to go. By Edward's death in 1307, only a windmill, a parish church and the friary were still standing. Many of the residents were forcibly resettled in a second new town at Newborough, 13 miles away. Bumaris soon outstripped its predecessor. It received its first royal charter in 1296, and by 1305 contained 132 burgages, or properties, making it the biggest borough in North Wales. It remained the most important town on Anglesey for most of its history. No other Newcastle in North Wales saw such a massive redistribution of land. Bumaris was the final link in the great chain of Edward's castles stretching along the North Wales coast. Even in its unfinished state, Bumaris Castle combines the beauty of its perfect symmetry with an overwhelming sense of ruthless power. This gatehouse was destined never to reach its full potential. The Thlanfaes Gate was designed to be a smaller replica of the castle's grand gatehouses, with a portcullis, arrow loops and a wall walk. But it was never completed, and the passage was later blocked up. During the castle's initial building phase in 1295, only ten of the sixteen towers and part of the outer walls were started. This left the north and northeast end of the castle without full protection. The remainder of the wall wasn't built and the original ten towers weren't heightened until a second construction period over ten years later. The outer wall of the castle was built with over 300 shooting positions for archers to use. Overlooked by the towering inner walls and surrounded by the moat, this was a formidable obstacle. On the 10th of April 1295, Edward I gave 60 shillings, that's about £1,600 today, to James 
of St George for the new castle. James was the master of the King's works in Wales and a master mason. The vast project started to evolve. Over the next few months, payments of over £7,000 at over £3,750,000 today were made towards the building works. Never before had so much money been thrown at a project in such a short time. The moat was dug and trenches for foundations excavated. Local stone from Penmon was quarried, partly shaped and carried here by sea to be finished and laid by hundreds of skilled masons. Stone workers were brought here from all over England, places such as Gloucestershire, Lincolnshire and Yorkshire. And at its peak in the summer of 1295, there were 450 masons at work. By February 1296, over 2,000 masons, carpenters, diggers and labourers had built the inner walls to a height of six metres. And four of the towers had been started. That was just ten months of work. I'm now in the South Gatehouse, which isn't a straight entrance. Come in and turn 90 degrees from the first entrance you go through. It had heavy doors, murder slots, portcullises and arrow loops. The designers of the South Gatehouse meant business. The passage to the inner part of the castle would have been a death trap to enemies, if it had ever been finished. The gatehouse was never completed. The room above where the defenders would have stood and the portcullis equipment housed was never built. Funds ran low and the builders weren't paid. In 1306, 11 years after work started, the castle remained vulnerable to attack and urgent business work was needed to improve its security. It was feared that the Scots were on their way to join forces with the Welsh. A square extension, the Barbican, was built against the front of the open gateway passage in a bid to protect the unfinished castle. When Edward I visited in the summer of 1296 to check up on the work, he stayed in a temporary thatched hut, just like the workers. When Edward visited, the walls would have been relatively low and masked by timber scaffolding. Holes running up the walls are put-log holes where the poles were inserted into the walls. As the walls were raised, the masons built in fireplaces, ready for the rooms to be built around them. King Edward had come for his inspection two and a half months after building started. There'd been rapid progress. But just a few months later, the Royal Treasurer received a letter direct from James of St George and Walter of Winchester, the Clerk of Works. Funds were running out. Wages weren't being paid. To build the perfect castle, there was a cost. In total, the works cost £14,500. The castle was never finished because Edward's war in Scotland meant that he had no money to continue building. The castle is now recognised as a World Heritage Site. 
This podcast has been produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio. I thank the passengers and the teams from Steam Dreams and West Coast Railways for making this podcast possible. Join me in a couple of weeks for the next episode. And thank you very much for listening.